We teach us. Welcome to the We Teach Us podcast, a space to reimagine our education system. This is episode six, and I'm your facilitator, Ryan Dalton. Let's get started. Do now. All right, for today's do now question, I ask people, what do you think about when you hear the phrase, like a girl? Mm, to me, it's like, you're technically judging them how they are, to me. Like, they hit like a girl, it's just how they hit. But you can't, like, just say someone hits like a girl, because you, like, you never know, like, how they are for real. In ways, it can be positive and negative. Because, say, if you're around most boys, boys will tease him because he has feminine ways. If you're around a woman or a girl, they'll think he's a sissy. Not saying I have anything against homosexual people or people that's like what they like. I feel it should be, I feel people should be happy how the way they is and how they respect themselves or throw themselves out there or how they present themselves. I feel they should do it, but it's a good, it's a negative and it's a positive way at the same time. Yeah, answer your question. When I hear the phrase like a girl, that means just depending on I'm a softball, so um, we do stuff like hit like a girl or think like a girl or do things like a girl or um, think pink, kind of. Um, um, so just um, whatever it is that you're doing, do it like a girl. Is it positive or negative? Depending on how it's used, because if it's used towards a male, then it's almost like being, um, it's almost like saying that you're you're weak in a sense of saying that you're not uh, a strong like a, a male should be. You're, you're acting like a girl. Like a girl, I, I just, I, I, I think that uh, when I hear that term, that it, it shows um, the aspects of a, a boy or a man not uh, living up to expectation of what a strong man should be. Um, that's all I get out of it. Hmm, like a girl, let me see. If I were thinking of my father, <laughs> and he would say, well, you drive just like a girl. And so when I'm driving, and if somebody is driving really slow and they don't know what they are doing, and I'm like, that must be a female in that car. And most times it's a female in the car and not a man. So it, it I mean, sometimes it's kind of sexist. I guess, but um, it just depends on what, I guess, in what terms you're thinking of it as, so yeah. <laughs> the commercials that I've seen where they ask kids to to run like a girl, you know, and when you ask the younger kids where they, they run really hard and then as they get older, it's, it's it becomes an insult. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, whatever like a girl was an insult. Oh, I guess it sounds like somebody's trying, uh, ref- trying to, say that girls are weak or like a girl like uh you need to start acting like a girl um I, I just think that's a, um that's something that you shouldn't say i mean i think you know a lot of times people say stuff because that's the way they were raised in the earlier generations and um that's a pretty ignorant statement because what that mean <laughs> girls are powerful girls are smart i got two girls um but um that's just you know um Sometimes we have to let ignorant or bad 
ways. It's another way you say that, but you got to let some of that stuff go because you got words are powerful. And at one time, people didn't care about what, how kids felt about things because that's not sensitive. Because that make it seem like, well, you act like a girl, that means you girls are weak, uh, you know, so. This Week in the News. All right, this is This Week in the News. I'm here with my number one co-teacher, real life partner, and real life wife, <laughs> Ronnie Stalton. Hey. Hi. <laughs> That's know. funny, like real life wife as opposed to... Fake life wife? I don't okay. know. <laughs> Sims? There, there was a whole Twitter conversation <laughs> this week about work wives and... <laughs> Work wives, um, baking goods, baking cookies and things. Um, so maybe maybe that's a fake life wife. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so I'm going to let you go first this week. All right. My first article is coming from HuffPost.com. And the title is, Ayanna Presley wants to stop the school to prison pipeline. Oh, please do. <laughs> so Rep. Ayanna Presley is set to introduce legislation on Thursday to tackle the problem of students of color, particularly black girls facing disproportionately punitive discipline in schools. Yes. The article goes on to say Presley's legislation co-sponsored by Rep. Ilhan Omar would establish $2.5 billion in new grants for states and schools to provide educators with implicit bias training, mm. invest in counselors and social workers, and adjust school discipline policies, notably around quote-unquote appearance and quote-unquote grooming for students with input from families and community members. Great. And that that is amazing because all of these things are needed. The training, the counselors, so the additional staff to support. Um, it goes on to say to be eligible for the funds, schools would have to ban suspensions and expulsions in all grades for being late or chronically absent mm. and for minor infractions like violating grooming policies. Most other suspensions and expulsions would have to end for kids up to fifth grade. The schools would also have to ban corporal punishment, isolation and restraining students. Mm, that's great. This is it's incredible. Didn't we already ban corporal punishment? But <laughs> apparently not. Okay. According to this. Okay. So for anyone unaware, what are grooming policies? Grooming policies have to do with how students of color style their hair. So it could be dreadlocks or what they call quote unquote progressive hairstyles. Okay. So we spoke about that um on the previous episode with Zelly and he right. was talking about how specifically black students are targeted for their targeted for their hairstyles. Exactly. So the reason why this legislation is so important is because, and according to the article, it states these statistics, black girls in particular face harsher treatment in school than their peers. They are over five times more likely to be suspended than white girls, according to a 2017 report from the National Women's Law Center, which used data from the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights from 2013 to 2014. Yeah, I mean... That's where we're seeing the, the intersection of race and gender come into play. And um, I feel like almost every episode so far, this is the sixth episode now of We Teach Us, and almost every episode, this has come up as a as a problem. And um, it, it is, is a major issue. Absolutely. So the article goes on to say, not only are our girls carrying trauma from their personal lives when they enter school, 
but for far too many, schools have become a place that criminalizes and harms girls of color, says Presley, who made history last year as the first Black woman elected to Congress from Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, schools are supposed to be places where students are coming to learn. And it should be safe environments, not places where they're criminalized and targeted, which is what's happening here. I think it is wonderful that we have a representative who is bringing attention to these issues. um, And hopefully we'll see some change. Yeah, that would be great. All right. All right. All right. So my first article is from Vox.com. And the title is, The Future of Sex Ed Has Arrived. Is America Ready? No. No, they are not. <laughs> I we hope should they, be. We should be, but <laughs> we need to be. they're not. And the article basically breaks that down. So under the title, it says, even in liberal California, families are pushing back against lessons on gender identity. The battles could be a blueprint for the rest of the country. Hmm. So um, California has begun this very comprehensive sex ed um, courses. Uh, I think right now it's basically pilot programs. Okay. Um, but this article really breaks it down great, gives a good painting of some of the activities they do, some of the stuff that they do. Um, and they look great. Okay. A few episodes ago, we spoke about South Africa's right, yeah. Yeah, sex ed. Um, and it's looking a lot like that. We're talking about good sex education, about sex in general, mm-hmm. talking about gender identity, talking about sexual orientation, talking about um, sexual health. Awesome. It it all sounds great. In the beginning of the article, the author is speaking about a um, activity that was observed in one of these classes. Mm-hmm. And um, the author says, next, they move into a discussion of differences between gender identity, gender expression, and sex. The facilitator says, can someone else tell you what your gender identity is? Mm-hmm. Several students say, no. Is it okay to not be 100% sure yet? The students say, yes. Mm-hmm. It, and it actually says, Yes, is the enthusiastic response from the class. Mm. So already it's it's just sounds like this inclusive, right. positive, a, a positively framed thing. It's not some polarizing thing like we experience oftentimes in America. Right. It's already being spoken about in positive light and like a like in a with no pressure right. uh, to know exactly what's going on. So the article says, Welcome to the future of sex education in America. California wants to lead the way. But even in one of the bluest of blue states, where just about 32% of voters cast their ballots for Donald Trump in 2016, programs like the one at Western are getting backlash. Hmm. In 2016, the state passed a law requiring that schools offer LGBTQ inclusive sex ed with lessons on gender identity and expression, as well as materials on HIV prevention and healthy relationships. Last year, the state released draft guidelines aimed at helping schools put the law into practice. And since then, parents have been pushing back, with some even taking their kids out of public schools so they don't have to receive the new sex ed. Wow. Can you believe that? Oh my goodness. So the article continues. The day before Torjan gave her lesson about gender and sexuality, parents, advocates, and even students protested outside their legislators' offices around the state, demanding a repeal of the law. One parent, Shonda Ellensworth Labados, called it a cognitive behavior modification program to sexualize and groom your children at a protest not far from Western. Yeah, so of course there are these very conservative protesters who were extremely against it. 
So the article continues. Mm -hmm. Today, 39 states and the District of Columbia require some form of sex or HIV education, but only 17 require it to be medically accurate. What? Yeah, meaning educators can teach that condoms don't work or that innate gender differences govern everything from how we look at our fingernails to how we carry our books. So lies? Yeah. (laughs) Just blatant lies. Blatant outright lies. Um, So they're required to teach this, but it doesn't have to be medically accurate. So we see... The point being... mm, (laughs) I don't know. Continue to have like the highest teen pregnancy and STD rates in the developed world. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's just, to me, it's very positive that California is doing this. I love it. Um, I really recommend reading this article. It's I, we can't sit here and read every bit of it, right. but it it really paints a a great picture of the programs being offered, and the course sounds great. Yeah, I think you know as we're doing these episodes, it's becoming more and more apparent that while everything around us is changing, education and the system of education is remaining stagnant and in the same place. Yeah, and sex education is included in those areas of not being given a proper attention, not being relevant, not being sensitive. Um, so we definitely do need to make some adjustments in that area. And it's a good thing that California is um, taking a lead on that. Yeah, bravo, California. And hopefully the rest of the country will follow the lead like the article says. Right. <laughs> All right. What's your second article? So my second article is coming from quartz.com. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And the title is, Finland has the most efficient education system in the world. That's all facts. Definitely true. No surprise there. No. Okay, this is a quote from the article. Students in some places like Singapore and Hong Kong spend a lot of time learning both in and out of school, and it shows. They are top performers in PISA, the OECD's test of 15-year-olds. Others like the U.S. spend a lot of time studying but get middling results. The endless lessons and homework don't seem to produce results. And we've talked about on previous episodes the enormous amount of homework that students get. And while it's not a practice, you know, parents as a result deciding to opt their children (laughs) out of homework. But again, the results from these tests reveal that Obviously, what we're doing is not working. Not working. It's not working, yet we continue to do it. Sure. But countries like Finland, where school starts at age seven, there's not much homework and kids don't take high stakes tests, so there is no need for expensive tutoring. Students test well while putting in fewer hours of study. Andreas Sleicher, head of the education unit at the OECD, calls this learning productivity. Yeah. It sounds productive. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, like, we're always talking about teaching to the test and how terrible that is for teachers, how terrible it is for students, and yet we continue to do it. Right. And then, like, we're we're talking about if kids are well-rested, kids are able to play outside more, do their own thing, engage in recreational activities without worrying about piles and piles of homework. And are not stressed. Not stressed as little children. Right. They're going to do better in school. Exactly. So, I mean, we need to get rid of the test, basically, according to this. like According to everybody. (laughs) Not everybody. (laughs) 
Okay, um, it goes on to say, in terms of reading test score points per hour of learning, Finnish students come out on top, followed by kids in Germany and Sweden. In these places, students learn a lot in a very little time. Canada, Japan, and the UK come out with productivity above the OECD average, but China, Singapore, and the US ranked a bit below it. Hmm. We hear often this quote of working harder. Working smarter, not harder. Smarter, not harder. And Finland has that down. Yeah. Working smarter. Children start at a later age. They learn what they need to learn, but it's not infringing on their time outside of school. It's not infringing on them being children. Exactly. And and that's what we forget here. Um, and, and I will say that Sometimes schools operate as just a glorified daycare center. And that seems like the utility in America for a lot of schools is we just need a place to keep kids from this hour to this hour while parents can work. And it's this capitalist system where we have to have productivity in this capitalist system. And so therefore we need a place, someone somewhere to watch our children while the adults are busy working. And inundate them with a lot of times meaningless work. Right. Meaningless work. And that is not producing results. Not at all. It's it's wild. All right. So my next article is from thelily.com. Um, the title is A fourth grader was threatened with rape by classmates. Hmm. She was told to stay away from boys. Wow. That's the title. And she was told that by the school. Wow. Um, Just under the title, it says, this elementary school got it all wrong, Mm -hmm. experts say. Sexual misconduct cases like this one involving very young kids are notoriously hard to handle. I'm just going to read the first part of the article. Okay. Tim Perrier knew something was wrong as soon as his nine-year-old daughter got Mm -hmm. off the school bus in late October. Crying, she mumbled something about boys, quote, doing bad things to her. But when Perrier pressed for specifics, she shook her head. I don't want to Mm. talk about that, Daddy. Perrier remembers her saying, I don't want to talk about that. A few hours passed before Perrier and his wife succeeded in drawing out details, which they later confirmed against contemporaneous statements written by two other girls who were there. Mm. A group of boys in their class at Gail Bailey Elementary in Charles County, Maryland, made sexual threats to all three girls during recess, the girls said then grabbed Perrier's daughter and simulated sexual acts over her clothes. Wow. They said they were going to rape her, said Perrier. Mm. They simulated the moves on her, mm-hmm. up against her. They said their boy parts were a flute and the girls were going to play them. <sighs> so, I mean, that's wow. completely intense. Um, and the article speaks about how terribly the school handled this situation. Wow. It, it continues. The school announced last week that its principal and vice principal will be stepping down. For the past month, they've been publicly criticized for the way the school dealt with the alleged assault. After the girls reported what happened, immediately after the incident, Perrier said a teacher told them to, quote, stay away from the boys and return to the playground. Wow. So here you have girls telling adults something like this that happened. Um, mm. sexual assault right even though they're young children it's still sexual assault mm. and a grown teacher told this child just stay away from boys and go back out to the playground wow 
where the boys were. Nothing at that time was done with the boys. Wow. And so it says, um, the teacher told them to, quote, stay away from the boys and return to the playground where they continued to be sexually harassed and assaulted. So this is not like this person called me a name or this person tripped me or sexually assaulted them. Yeah. And they're treating it as if it's nothing. Yeah, as if it's absolutely nothing. Okay. At the end of the day, the school, without notifying the parents, and I'm, there's an emphasis on that, without notifying nice. the parents, put some of the girls and boys on the same bus, mm. school bus home. One of the girls says she was assaulted again on the way home. Yikes. So, you know, this is a complete mismanagement of it. Absolutely. I'm a, a huge proponent. And if a child is coming to you saying any type of abuse is happening, whether it's from a peer, whether it's happening at home, whether it's a teacher, I believe the child and I investigate that before right. I just send them back into Dismiss it, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yikes. So the article continues to talk about how these kind of cases are very difficult when dealing with kids so young. These kids are nine years old, so wow. that they're babies, you right. know. The article says, these kinds of sexual misconduct cases between very young children are some of the hardest for schools to handle. Under Title IX, which guarantees equal access to education for all students, schools are legally required to create a safe environment. With college or high school students, it's easier to know what to do. Make the alleged victim feel safe, investigate the assault, and if necessary, punish the student responsible. But elementary age students probably don't fully understand what they're saying or doing, right. said Carolyn Stone, a professor of counselor education at University of North Florida. And if they do, it could be because they've been abused themselves. Mm. So this professor is saying, and, and there's more detail about it in the article, that at this age, if a child does this to another child um yes immediately protect the victim right but the 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 perpetrator might also be a victim right. themselves not in that incident right. but in a previous incident and right. that might be why they're acting out um so the father perrier didn't want to go to the police he understands that the boy's actions are very likely a direct result of abuse they've experienced themselves mm -hmm. but he felt like he had to so he went to the police because the school did not handle it properly. Wow. And because of that, the article says, one of the boys in Gail Bailey case has been charged with fourth degree sexual offense and second degree sexual assault. The school subsequently suspended him. Hmm. The article continues to say, mm -hmm. all that probably could have been avoided, Stone said, if the parents had felt like the school was taking the incident seriously. I mean, the best thing... For that administration to have done is to step down. Absolutely. I mean, it just gross negligence. Yeah. For how they they responded to this incompetence. I mean, people are sending their kids to school and are expecting them to be in good hands for them to be protected and supported and taken care of, and this just wasn't that wasn't done in this case. It wasn't. And so you, you spoke earlier about push out and how specifically black girls are targeted, but girls in general are targeted in this way in our schools, um, especially where, especially the older the boys get, the more entitled they feel mm -hmm. to girls' bodies, girls' attention. And um, we perpetuate 
this idea early on when a little boy hits a little girl and we say, oh, he has a crush on you. Yeah. Instead of just saying, no, don't let anybody hit you. Right. Um, so there are things that we do to sort of set the stage for this type of stuff. So and like I said, then other things come into play like um, trauma, abuse and things like that. Yeah, that reminds me of, we spoke about an article a couple episodes ago of screening children for trauma before they enter school. And this is a very good example of, had that been in place, Mm. you know, we could have, that student could have been identified, the perpetrator in this case, could have been identified as a student who experienced trauma. And there could have been support put in place to help the student and possibly have prevented a situation like this from even happening. Yeah, so prevented that student from even acting in that way. Exactly. Potentially. Um, On top of that, we absolutely must make sure that schools properly handle these situations. When a student is coming forward and saying, I'm being assaulted, I'm being abused, I'm being whatever that may be. schools must take it seriously and they must have protocol in place to protect those students. The student probably will not feel safe sharing other occurrences, knowing that when they did share something, nothing happened. Right. Yeah. So schools have to do better. We have to do better by these kids. This also does highlight the need for staff to receive appropriate training. These people did not know how to handle it. Can there be support, you know, offered to staff on how to handle a situation like this. Yeah. I mean, that um, training for the staff is huge and they should know how. And as teachers, we're mandated reporters and we do these little trainings that a lot of people don't take seriously. And I can, I myself, I can say like, you know, you're sent this little thing. You have to click through the answers and you just do it because you have to. These compliance things, often teachers just, you know, click through just to Mm -hmm. do what they have to do. Um, but we have to have proper trainings. Definitely. We have to make sure everybody is trained for this. Um, and speaking of training, my first article about sex education, comprehensive sex education also is something that can prevent this type of thing. Because right. from a young age, kids are learning about consent. They're learning about health, sex health, and ways to carry themselves. Um, so that could have also been a huge preventative measure in this case for the the little boys Absolutely. who acted in that way and for the girls who were in that position that's and so even true. for the staff. So true. All right. Well, that's This Week in the News. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. <laughs> I do. Today's I Do will be delivered by educator and special education facilitator, who also happens to be my wife, Ronice Dalton. I never considered myself to be a feminist, but by virtue of being born a woman in this male-dominated society, with all of the messages, programming, and assaults that come with it from birth, I was placed in a system that either forced me to fight it or succumb to it. Throughout my life, I have been surrounded by examples of women who have done both. I myself have done both at various points in my life. However, as Bell Hook states, feminists are made, not born. One does not become an advocate of feminist policy simply by having the privilege of having been born female.
Like all political positions, one becomes a believer in feminist politics through choice and action. I am now becoming more committed to the intentional thoughts and actions that challenge patriarchy. I can remember my paternal grandmother, a strong black woman, having a painting up in her home. It was of black women at a salon, sitting under hair dryers, while shirtless, black, muscular men knelt down and gave them foot massages. She put it in a central part of her home, over the dining room table. I never thought much of it, but what I do remember was my father's countless references to it and the anger it produced in him. To him, she represented a woman who had opinions too strong and as a result was single and without a man, as if that was a negative thing. He would bring up this painting and reference her desire to dominate men. I was very young when he would go on these rants, and it made me not want to be in that same category as my grandmother. I hadn't realized at the time that I was being indoctrinated through the use of fear into a patriarchal way of thinking. As angry as that painting and what it portrayed made him, one thing I know for sure is that my father will be perfectly fine with the painting that portrayed the opposite a group of women in subjugation to a man, waiting on him hand and foot. He'd be so all right with it, he would probably hang it up in the most central part of his home because that is his worldview. My maternal grandmother, a strong Puerto Rican woman, provided a very different point of view for me. She was a housewife who came from a household where her mother was a housewife, and they both adhered to this notion of a woman's place being in the home. My mother followed suit in many ways. There was no objection to this idea, and there seemed to be no displeasure in it or protest to it. It was done because that was the way it was supposed to be. It was their culture. The sentiment around men, manhood, women, and womanhood was very different here. The man was to be central and needed to be waited on hand and foot. The woman was to provide warm meals when he got home, whatever else he needed, and basically whatever he said went. My dad had more praise for the latter representation of women, and in many ways expected that in our household. As a young girl yearning for my dad's approval and acceptance, faced with these two realities, my conclusion was that I should do the thing that pleased my dad the most. This followed by years in religious institutions with Bible-backed support for the subordination of women only confirmed the patriarchal attitudes my dad so adamantly clung to and hoped to instill in me. Adding religion to the mix, it was backed by even more fear of violating this order of relating and domination that was allegedly mandated by God himself. Himself, because God was also apparently a man. It's interesting now to think back at these two important matriarchal figures of my family, seeing their different relationships and approaches to patriarchal indoctrination, messages, ideas, and violence that surrounded them. They were who they were. They were my grandmothers. I never questioned it. I merely accepted both realities as they were, and mine, the only one I knew. Without realizing it early on, I was presented with the way male domination and sexism was expressed in everyday life, starting in my home, within church, and our broader society as I began going out into the world growing up in New York City. I can remember being as young as 12, riding in the car with my mother, father, and sister. I was in the back seat eating a lollipop. We stopped at a red light and I looked out the window at the sidewalk to find an older man looking at me, seedily smiling and making a gesture that had to do with his hands and his mouth with my lollipop. 
I was so confused. I asked my mother what the man was doing and why. She responded, he's thinking something nasty. I didn't fully understand what she was talking about and did not press the issue further. But I remember not wanting to eat a lollipop in public after that day for fear of someone potentially tainting something innocent. Growing up in a city, it was unfortunately a regular part of life being harassed by disgusting men of various ages as I just walked down the street. When I say men of all ages, I mean from my age at the time all the way up to my grandfather's aged men. Their unsolicited come-ons, sexual gestures, whistles, animal sounds, suggestions to smile, and verbal assaults bombarded me as I would merely be trying to walk wherever I was going to school or home or to the corner store and anywhere and everywhere. It didn't matter how young I was, their assaults were consistent and unending. They made me feel uncomfortable and ashamed. They made me angry. At times they filled me with fear of what might happen if I did not respond with a smile and a thank you. Their sense of entitlement of some type of ownership of me, of my body, of my reactions to them was palpable and oppressive. I especially hated summers in New York City as I became a teenager. To me, it meant I get more attention than if I was able to hide my body beneath a winter coat. I didn't know what it was like to walk down the street and not hear comments from repulsive harassers. I soon learned that even winter coats were no relief from the unwanted attention. Even as a grown woman, the simple act of driving and going to a gas station and filling up my car became something I dreaded. Gas stations have always been places where you have to stand for a long period of time, especially because New York City gas pumps most often do not have that little metal piece that allows the pump to flow without you having to hold the handle so you can get back in your car while it pumps. That's a long period of time that men use to provide unsolicited commentary on women's beauty, bodies, and anything else they wrongly feel entitled to. It was not until recently, until I entered my 30s, that I have begun responding differently. My typical response had always been to ignore or roll my eyes, make my annoyance apparent, walk faster, or worse, feel a sense of obligation to appear thankful for a compliment, but never to challenge it, never to challenge them. One day last year, when I was standing, putting gas in my car, a random old man stopped his entire car and rolled down his window to tell me, Girl, you looking good. I stared at him blankly. Appearing agitated, he said, Did you hear what I said? With zero emotion, I said, Yes. Seemingly flabbergasted, he said, Aren't you going to say thank you? I said no, to which he angrily drove off. Years of street harassment have brought me to this place of power, but they still have not lessened the uncertainty and fear in those situations. Fear in the knowledge that these fragile men who wear their chauvinism like a badge of honor will react with violence, whether physical or verbal, if I do not respond in a way they feel entitled to. This is not a hyperbole. It is a regular occurrence for men to become violent with women who reject their passes. I once witnessed a woman have a glass bottle thrown at her, missing her by mere inches because she rejected their advances. As much as I and my responses might have changed to the misogynist world around me, the world is the same. Alas, it was never merely me who needed to change in the first place. This is true for all women. This is especially true for black women. I've been pregnant twice. I've birthed two beautiful baby girls. 
Though I was fortunate enough to not experience the hostility that a large majority of Black women face, pregnancy for Black women can be treacherous and all too often even fatal. The medical profession in general responds to patients of color differently than white patients. This is based in racism and the racist assumption that Black people feel less physical pain. This is only amplified for pregnant Black women as this systemic racism intersects with sexism. According to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, Black, Native American, and Alaska Native women die of pregnancy-related causes at a rate about three times higher than those of white women. As a Black woman, I was three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than my white peers. What was different for me as a Black woman was that I was lucky enough to find a practice of midwives that were all women of color. It was truly a wonderful experience to go through one of the most simultaneously frightening and exciting experiences in my life, surrounded by not only women, but women who looked like me. I felt supported, heard, understood, cared for, and safe. I also had the most supportive partner who was there every step of the way to advocate for me and speak up when and if I couldn't, especially during the birthing process due to intense pain and discomfort. However, this is just another example of how patriarchy, patriarchal violence, and in this case, patriarchy combined with white supremacy is not only dangerous, but often deadly. So what exactly is patriarchy? Simply put, it is the assumption that men are superior to women and that they should rule over us. It operates in our society as an ideology held by individuals and an oppressive system that infiltrates all aspects of our lives. Bell Hook said, everything we do in life is rooted in theory. Whether we consciously explore the reasons we have a particular perspective or take a particular action, there is also an underlying system shaping thought and practice. And we see how the theory shapes the system, shapes the thoughts and practices, shapes the theory, shapes the, you get the idea. Patriarchy operates as an institutionalized system of domination. Examples of this can be seen in the ways that women have historically been kept out of certain jobs, women not being allowed to vote, the ever-present and enormous pay gap between men and women, how there is still toxic socialization based on gender, how girls and boys for that matter are still pushed in certain career directions merely based on sexism and the fact that they are girls, the fact that the government and men in general want to control women's bodies, giving no bodily autonomy with policies and laws surrounding issues of pregnancy, abortion, maternity leave, and menstruation, the high rates of street harassment, sexual assault, rape, and recent increase of kidnappings, rapes, killings of specifically Black girls and women. Though this is not an exhaustive list, these are all ways that patriarchy manifests itself in day-to-day -day occurrences of systemic oppression and violence against women. And as I stated earlier, this violence and oppression is ever intensified where gender meets race and even class. For instance, despite the fact that the women's suffrage movement in America fought against many of these systemic issues, Black women and non-Black women of color were still excluded from that movement and the social victories attained from it, though those victories were held and celebrated by white women. Women are still fighting for equality in this country, and Black women have to fight even harder. I see this all the time. This is my experience. This is my life. Yet, if you speak up and make it known that you are tired of it, 
you are automatically labeled an angry black woman. As if anger to all of this is not an appropriate sentiment. Maybe if more people were angry about this, more things will begin to change. I see assumptions that I, as a woman, as a black woman, am less knowledgeable about my field and subjects because I am a woman, a black woman. I constantly have to prove myself, show that I do in fact know what I'm doing. Recently at work, I received an order of four boxes of copy paper. A male staff member told me he'd bring the paper to my office. A week later, I came to my office to find the boxes of paper stacked outside my door. I didn't want to wait another week before the paper made its way into my office, so I moved it myself. When my male co-worker found out I had moved them myself, he remarked, Oh, you have that man strength. It's in times like these when my mind goes back to the conflicting ideas and archetypes of my childhood. Why did he assume I would need help in the first place? When he did decide this, why wasn't that task prioritized in the way I often see co-workers of all races and genders jumping to swiftly help my white women co-workers at even an inkling that they might need it? Why does my strength, the strength of a woman, the strength of a strong black woman have to be attributed to masculinity? These questions and many others and all of the realities previously mentioned are things that most cisgender heterosexual men don't even have to think about. Often, they are not even thought about by many of us women, merely because many of us have become numb and accustomed to the constant onslaught of patriarchal discrimination and violence that we face. We've had to desensitize ourselves to it because the occurrences and overtures are relentless and numbing. This reality is, of course, no different for our women and girl educators and students in our public school system. We are all subject to the discrimination and violence at both the hands of those indoctrinated with sexist ideas and the broader oppressive patriarchal system. Our educators and students can be both perpetuators and victims of this violence. And we know our girls and specifically our black girls are most vulnerable to this. Soraya Chamali speaks about some of this in her Times article, All Teachers Should Be Trained to Overcome Hidden Biases. She said the impact of unconscious teacher bias is long understood and well-documented. This new research confirms decades of work done by various researchers. Through thousands of hours of classroom observations, it was identified that specific ways in which implicit and stereotypical ideas about gender govern classroom dynamics. They, as others have, found that teachers spend up to two-thirds of their time talking to male students. They also are more likely to interrupt girls, but allow boys to talk over them. Teachers also tend to acknowledge girls, but praise and encourage boys. They spend more time prompting boys to seek deeper answers while rewarding girls for being quiet. Boys are also more frequently called to the front of the class for demonstrations. When teachers ask questions, they direct their gaze towards boys more often, especially when the questions are open-ended. Biases such as these are at the root of why the United States has one of the world's largest gender gaps in math and science performance. Until they view their videotaped interactions, teachers believe they are being balanced in their exchanges. As we know, 
Monique Morris lays out a terrible but clear picture of how, for Black girls, this gender-based discrimination is escalated when race is introduced in her book and recent film, Push Out. According to the African American Policy Forum and Columbia Law School's Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies, nationally, Black girls are almost six times more likely to get out-of-school suspension than their white peers and more likely to be suspended multiple times than any other gender or race of student, which according to the Federal Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention further and disproportionately contributes to a cycle in which black girls are three times more likely to be referenced to juvenile court than white girls and 20% more likely to be detained. So what are some ideas of possible solutions? In order to see change in the school setting and in the broader community, we have to start small and start within. Because patriarchy is firmly embedded in every aspect of society and most especially within our minds and hearts, we must begin by examining our own perspectives for implicit biases and confront our own internalized sexism. We must educate ourselves. As Bell Hook states, Females were as socialized to believe sexist thinking and values as males. And before women could change patriarchy, we had to change ourselves. We had to raise our consciousness. This is true for women, and it is most especially true for men. If you are a man, become an ally. Engage in feminist thinking. Analyze and work to dismantle patriarchy and the privilege it affords to you. Understand how it negatively impacts women and how it negatively impacts you as a man. We can question our own allegiances to patriarchal thinking and action. As Bell Hook said, the enemy within must be transformed before we can confront the enemy outside. Once we begin our personal transformations, we can begin with simple outward acts, like simple corrections of people when they speak over or interrupt girls and women, by challenging boys and men when they tell a girl or woman she should smile, by asking simple questions when we are confronted with sexist, gender-based thinking and actions. Questions like, who says men, boys, women, girls should do or should not do, wear, speak, act in an X, Y, and Z way? By rephrasing statements from both students and coworkers that are riddled with problematic, patriarchal over and undertones. By amplifying girls' voices, Studies have shown that girls and young women occupy far less time and space than boys. We can be more vigilant. The World Health Organization found that school is the most common setting for sexual harassment and coercion of girls and young women. We have to create safe spaces for our girls and teach our boys appropriate ways of interacting. We can challenge gender stereotypes. We can make women, LGBTQ+, and gender non-conforming people more central in the curriculum and not just reserved for occasions, and do the work to make our school environments safer and more accepting for people of all identities. We can be more mindful of the messages present in children's books and literature that may be sexist and biased. We can be more aware of the sexism perpetuated by the media and music we can suggest staff book readings that use literature such as Bell Hook's Feminism is for Everybody that can open up this important conversation amongst fellow educators. Thinking back to my grandmother's painting and my father's reaction to it, I now realize his anger is much like the anger we see many 
especially conservative men and even women have in response to feminism. And this anger, like the anger many benefactors of systems of oppression display when confronted with counter movements, is not necessarily rooted in the idea of equality. It's rooted in the idea of a flipped reality, one in which they will be oppressed, one in which they will be subjugated, and in this case, one in which men will be subjugated to the same treatment that women currently receive. What my father and those like him do not understand is we are not asking for domination over men. We are asking for patriarchal violence and oppression to stop. We are asking for liberation for all. We are asking for equality. We are asking us to engage in the work to dismantle an oppressive system that engenders violence on both women and men. And I am asserting that us as educators should be on the forefront of this fight. We do. This episode's guest is community organizer and educator, Steph Bernal Martinez. Steph is committed to rejecting exceptionalism and practicing generative abolition in the South. Steph is the co-creator of 1977 Books, an abolitionist bookstore and community space for the people, by the people. Steph is someone who I personally know is truly about the work, and it is an absolute pleasure to have her on this episode. All right. Thanks for joining me, Steph. Hi. Hi. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me. Um, So let's just jump right into it. That Uh, sounds great. This episode, we're talking about patriarchy and how it manifests in the school system and also in more micro settings, um, the school community and classroom community. Mm. My first question for you is, what are overt ways you've seen patriarchal violence and terror manifested in the education system? Um. That's such a big question. Yeah, very. <laughs> um, okay, so you, we talked. You're using the term patriarchal violence for this, and for this instance, I think I'll just say um, sexism, um, because it, in some ways they're they're different, but also I'm going to use the word sexism for this. But um, the ways that I've witnessed sexism show up um, in school communities has has predominantly been like in the ways that we um, police children's bodies. And so for me, um, my experience with sexism um, is inextricable with the way that um, whiteness shows up in the classroom and the way that race plays out in the classroom. So the relationship between sexism and racism um, is like just they're they're together, like they don't they can't take them apart. And so um, when we're talking about the kinds of violence that children experience, we or oh, I'm witnessing often moments where um, maybe it's easier if I give just an example as opposed to trying to explain the phenomenon. But something that I've been thinking about a lot is the ways that young white girls in my classroom could utilize um, their femininity or their quote like purity um, in order to sort of like I won't use the word manipulate, but to sort of meet their needs or to meet the needs that are sort of. Um, pushed onto them. So for example, um, I would have students who would accuse or ex- or target um, other black girls or other black boys for their behavior in order to sort of like defer a responsibility um, from themselves. And so from a very young age, I like uh, I'm looking at these like tiny humans know how to participate in this um, form of violence. Right. And so 
Yeah. And you, when you taught mostly, what grade did you teach predominantly? Um, so I've been teaching in mixed grade classrooms. And so I would say I've taught first through third. Okay. So first through third. And so as early as first yeah. through third, you're seeing this yeah, already Yeah, right. You're seeing six and seven year olds and Yeah. Absolutely. And so um, specifically with this sort of sexism, um, with the greater system, what when we think about like policies and mm, it, it might not even necessarily have to be policies. You mentioned um, clothing, which is something mm-hmm. that is monitored. And I see that with dress codes and things like that. Yeah. Um, what are some other ways that we see kind of on a broader systemic level, this sexism enacted on our students and even teachers? Yeah, so I've been again. I've these are like things that I don't really have specific answers for explaining the like w- the phenomena behind. It's just sort of like I'm I'm a teacher in a classroom who's bearing witness to lots of different situations that obviously have um, been have obviously like are a product of the oppressive systems we live in, right? So, going if we want to use this example around um, dress codes, I think often about like the messaging behind that is that we prioritize the the education of of young boys and young men, um, particularly young white boys over over everyone else, right? So that is a a really broad way in which we we tell children like you need to dress a particular way because when you don't dress that way you're a distraction to your peers and those right. peers that we're referring to are usually white boys right yeah i mean i've literally <laughs> heard that language used like um you shouldn't wear this short skirt or insert whatever type of clothing they deem inappropriate mm-hmm. and i'll put that in quotes um do because it's going to be distracting to the boys mm-hmm. and to me that's not only is that sexist, mm-hmm. um, which I guess is also a part of sexism, the to me it's I also think about what message is that sending the boys. Um Yeah. <laughs> but apart from the the sort of like just basic sexist thing of like reinforcing this idea of mm-hmm. sexism and patriarchy, but the fact that it's okay to be distracted or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that this is this, that women should literally change their entire mm-hmm. being to meet your needs. Yeah. That it is um, young people's response, young girls responsibility to um, shift their behaviors to accommodate the needs of, of boys in their lives or men in their lives. And, and if, and if you push this a little further and think about the intersections with race again, sorry to bring it back to no, that, no. but keep bringing I, it back. <laughs> I think about like young black girls in my classroom who are often characterized differently um, than young white girls for being like too grown. When like the example, and I was just talking to a friend recently about this, is like um, who is a black woman, and we were talking about young black girls, and she gave this example of a picture where there's. Um, a black child and a white child wearing the same thing, two girls wearing the same outfit. But for the white child, like it's cute and adorable. But for the black child, she's acting grown. She's being wow, an adult. Yeah. And so I think that plays out in schools all of the time, right? So we'll, in addition to like policing girls' bodies, we're like extra policing the bodies of young black girls, right? So like, why is she wearing that? She's like, we're hypersexualizing girls and then expecting them to um, conform to our own like projections, right? So we've decided that like this, this we've we've already just given so much meaning to this child's existence just because we have our own shit and our own yeah. like 
<laughs> views. I don't know if we're allowed to cuss. We can cuss. Sure. <laughs> I was like, shit, our own <laughs> fucked up shit about what, what, how we perceive girls, right? So when we talk about systems and we go back bigger, we have to be thinking about the the not only the systems that our children are are exposed to, but like the things that teachers are, have been conditioned to believe or think. And so you have to unpack all of those things that 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 the teacher has learned, right? Yeah. About about young people, about women, about respectability, all, all of those things. Yeah. So in the previous episode, um, I spoke with Zeli Imani and he was talking, we were talking about respectability politics and how that looks um, race wise in, in a school. Um, and so this would sort of, would you agree that this sort of like fits in, you just mentioned respectability politics, but there's also a respectability yeah. politics for our young women and what, mm-hmm. what we project onto them. And that's both mm-hmm. men and women that do that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think, I again, this goes back to for me as because I'm a teacher, like the my responsibility and my and my te- like fellow teachers responsibility and sort of interrupting um, those expectations because res- respectability politic, yes, is is absorbed by their society. But also we are like we are literally teachers and we are literally this person who sets up a standard um, for our young people in our, in our classrooms, in our care. Right. Especially in the lower grades. So. Uh, this is like a very innocent thing, but um, I, I'll use I use the word innocence just to describe. I think it's like it's it's not malintentioned, but I will I've heard teachers like when a kid is sitting on the, a girl is sitting on the carpet um, and say she's like wearing a skirt that day. They'll be like, close your legs like and just like she's just existing as a child. You I mean, I work with young people. So we're, we're on the ground a yeah, lot exactly. and playing and being silly and moving our bodies. And so there, whether or not the, the teacher who says that is trying to be hurtful or be quote sexist, there's still harm behind that because you're, you're, you're sending a message like you need to sit still. Then you start, you know, you start projecting all of your own stuff, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, onto children. And then again, that just is exasperated by race because you mean you might tell a white girl to sit down and close her legs, but you might tell the a black child, a black girl, that she needs to sit down, and close her legs, and she might also get ran up for like X, Y, and Z. Right? It, yeah. it goes further the way that we um, um, sort of punish children for for just existing. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting you mentioned that specific example because I'm I sit here with two daughters and Maya. Uh, she's she'll be four in February. She loves dresses, loves wearing dresses, as you know. Um, <laughs> and it's it's for me, it's it's so hard because I want to teach her. It, see, and even my language is about to be a little bit messed up. I want to teach her how to conduct herself in a way where she's just not flashing everybody all the mm-hmm. time with her dress. But I also don't want to send those messages. I don't want to do something that's hurtful mm-hmm. to her and that's like not allowing her to just exist, like you're saying, because she's mm-hmm. just a kid. So I'll see her, you know, wallowing around on the ground with a dress and I I have to be careful how I say it. And mm-hmm. and I'm not always great at that. I'll, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I will fall into the like, close your legs category, you're wearing a dress. Other times uh, I might be more like, hey, we just have to be a little more mindful when we're in a dress that everybody can see your whole underwear mm-hmm. and we do need to just yeah and 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 with my own kids it kind of falls into the territory of also teaching body consciousness and Mm -hmm. body positivity Mm -hmm. and not 
I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting yeah. thing as a parent because I don't want her running around just <laughs> lifting her dress up all the time. <laughs> At the same time, I want her to be free and be a kid and not have to like constantly be in fear that like she has to fix the way she is for other people. Yeah, and I don't. There's no easy and perfect response to that, right? But I am asking folks. I think teachers, you know, you, <laughs> um, to think about like, what, what are you saying in, in that request? Or like, what is your own fears? Or what are your own projection, projections when you, when you ask for something like that? Or when you remind a student to, to um, sort of like, uh, you know, change the way that they're existing or, um, you know, moving in the room. But I also think and know that you have to hold the complexities of our, our real, our real life conditions, right? So, um, it also can be a safety issue for young girls. Um, right. And and that, that that you mean it's a through line, right? To when you get to high school and they start policing our dress code in terms of not just close your legs, but like you can't wear that spaghetti strap because it's distracting to right. um, this other it's other peer of yours. But yeah, I think I wonder what a conversation would look like with a small human to be like this is like an aspect of what the world wants. Like sometimes we have to be careful with our bodies um, and safe and like, but also this is your body and you are allowed to like move it the way that you want to encourage them to move the way they want to or, but we also have to protect it. Right. So, yeah. And, yeah. And that's that fine line. But I think that most people in what your example and what we're talking about have gone way over that line and yeah. are just like, close your damn legs. And yeah. Like, and with no explanation, yeah. right? Like you just, you've created this rule and it's going to be explained by the conditions in the classroom. And if those conditions are like girls in this class have to sit down and be quiet, which often is the case, yeah. um, then that's the message that they're taking home. Right. Mm. And then girls who don't sit down and be quiet, there'll be some who also will get punished for not following that rule too. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a hot mess. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it's, it's just like, it's such an insidious thing um, that, and like I said, it seems so, it seems so simple or innocent for a, a person to say that. I think like my mom would, would probably tell me that I'm being extra. Like that's <laughs> what she tells me a lot. I'm like, I'm being too much or I'm overthinking it, but you I mean it's all those like tiny minute um parts of our day as like girls and as women um that add up to like how we are allowed or not allowed to exist well it's it's the gendered microaggressions and it's um like things that also to like a man or someone who's never thought of it that in this way might not even think about this yeah um, might not have ever even thought like this could potentially be a harmful thing that i'm saying or doing um, but it's important that we're aware of that. It's important that, you know, these type of examples are made that we're aware, especially as teachers, we spend more time mm -hmm. with these kids than a lot of parents do yeah. waking hours. Um, so it's important that we're aware of these things. So that, that kind of does that, that kind of is a good segue into this next question, um, which is, um, what are some of the more subtle ways that patriarchy and sexism manifests itself in the school system and the school setting. Mm, like that that's both you mean the example that we've just been discussing is both subtle and very overt. Right. Um but again to sort of bring it back to the way that um the way that sexism thrives in schools as it intersects with um race, um I think a lot about 
I, I know I'm really harping on this and I'm pretty sure people are so tired of me um, bringing this up, but over and over again, I just saw the over-policing of, of young black people, particularly mm. young black girls. And we're starting to see this sort of um, maybe a little bit more openness to the conversation in uh in non-black communities. So I know black women who've been talking about this for a lifetime, so I don't want to act like they haven't been telling us. But um, I feel like I, in non-black communities, I'm hearing more people talk about um, the experiences of young black girls and and the trend of being pushed out of schools. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of folks and I'm sure that you've experienced or witnessed these types of um, situations that specifically push out um, black girls. And yeah. Um, I think that's where I'm, I'm feeling the most pressed and most moved as a, as an educator in like, um, developing the skills I need to, to, to create or the conditions I need to create in order to interrupt those things. And what does that look like and how does it look differently than it does for, for young black boys or, or for young boys of color, right? Because it, it, it definitely is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, I don't think it's overboard to continuously <laughs> mention that because it, first of all, it's, it's just real and it's important. And I think that's where like Kimberly Crenshaw's whole point with intersectionality mm-hmm. came in play is like, you know, you have, um, white women who definitely are disenfranchised by this patriarchal system, but then you have whole other groups of people who are disenfranchised on multiple levels and at multiple intersections. And um, we see that in school. So please bring it up as much as you want. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's important. Um, so with, with some of those, some, I guess some examples of that would, would it be like um, the sort of the coding instinct? Cause I know for instance, like um, the, the, the codes that are like defiance and um, disobedience. Mm-hmm. Those are those subjective codes that one educator might see something as defiance and another one might not. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the codes that are used to specifically police students in certain ways when you don't know what else to put it as, it's defiance or it's disobedience. Um, but it are also they are also specifically the codes that are used to what you're talking about, push out, um, Mm -hmm. target black students and specifically push out young black girls. Yeah. um, Um, So there, there's actually this educator in Durham, North Carolina, who I greatly admire named um, William Jackson. He runs an organization called Village of Wisdom. And one of the main things that he does is uh, run a program or a, a framework that he uses in a program called Black Genius. Mm. And so with Black Genius, um, one element of Black Genius is called cultural navigation. And so the idea behind that um, young young people, young Black people are having to learn skills to navigate um, white culture, white, white institutions, right? And then, and bring, like sort of weave through that. And I think about my students all the time who, young Black girls particularly, who are doing that at a rate that nobody else has to, right? So the skill of cultural navigation or like the practice of it um, can be misread. So mm. if, if, I just think about times when I'm in environments where like my identities aren't represented or my experiences aren't reflected or I'm in an environment that doesn't value me through the from the setup to the um, teachers to everything like my behavior would shift. And so even in situations where 
um, young black people, young black girls are um, being coded, like you said, as defiant or um, what was the other word that you used? Um, disobedient. Disobedient. So I'm I'm thinking about what what behaviors we are characterizing as defiant and disobedient, which are really just. Um, manifestations of being excluded of being ignored of being um not prioritized of not of not being part of a community so like i've also participated in classroom cultural practices where i am not meeting the needs of black students and then feeling frustrated with them for not for not just going with the flow right right um because everything about the way that schools are structured centers like um white white children um from the books we read from the teachers that are hired yeah. like everything right and so i i think about that cultural navigation piece and the amount of work that young black girls are required to do just to not get in trouble right <laughs> and then not and then going further and thinking about like how how can they um how do we define success for for young black children in general yeah and it it can be as simple as just an eye roll or a um a tone or you know a level a volume level of speech and the these are things that young black girls often get targeted for is mm-hmm. oh you're being too loud or mm-hmm. you're being too this or you're being too that um and so and almost entirely just about perception too like absolutely and it's not i mean like I I could literally be in spaces. I have been in spaces where we um, will single out one child who's being doing the exact behavior as another child. Like that's not that is not hyperbolic. That is like a real thing that happens all the time. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> and <clears throat> all the research and stuff about uh, sort of school to prison pipeline and uh, Monique Morris's book Push Out, which mm-hmm. we're actually talking about right now, yeah, in an indirect way, but um. All of that is like proof that this is absolutely happening. It's mm-hmm. not just me or you saying like, hey, this we've seen this. Like yeah, it's, it's just literally <laughs> Yeah. It's like happening all over the country mm-hmm. on a regular basis, unfortunately. Um so yeah, I, I have seen certain districts and areas who have started sort of focusing on the, that specific code mm-hmm. because it's the one that is used so subjectively. Okay. Um, and they have eradicated it at least for certain age groups. Mm-hmm. So I know California is one of the ones that just recently did, which that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, but I guess we'll, later on in the episode, we'll get to sort of some answers. But right now, as we're talking about this, I'm <laughs> seeing this as a possible solution to with our codes and stuff. I mean, a whole other episode is talking about rules and mm-hmm. alternative ways of discipline. But really looking at our codes of conduct and Mm -hmm. and our things and seeing how they might have this bias, whether um, race, gender, the intersection, um, and see what we can do to sort of eradicate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I I hear you saying like, that you'll, you all are going to explore on this podcast in the future. Um, sort of like the codes of conduct and expectations for young people, for children in schools. And um, I like one of the things that I've struggled with, especially when it comes to um, patriarchal violence is like, there is no, there is no application of that lens when we're looking at our codes of conduct. And so when we're, when we're exploring the things that, uh, get children in trouble or what or children are punished for we're not we're not we're not also thinking about um the issues of like race and 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 well sometimes we are but um the issue of like sexism and how that impacts um 
who gets punished for what and why. And um, so I am curious about, I'm looking forward to that episode to see Maybe what you'll y'all. be on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about what y'all will explore. Um, this might be taking a bit of a side trail, but I think it's an important one um, because codes of conduct and discipline are so often used to bring on this oppression, whether it's through race, nationalism, mm-hmm. um, gender. So often when I think about discipline in the school, um, one thing that I've realized time and time again is it's it's not used to allow for growth. It's not mm-hmm. seen as something to allow for growth. It's seen as this punitive measurement to oftentimes seek revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's vengeful. <clears throat> it's um, like temporary. So it's like remove a child from the situation mm-hmm. for a temporary period or punish them for something. So it's about mm-hmm. vengeance, punishment, and then just like a temporary fix. Um, but mm-hmm. it's not it's rarely in most traditional settings an opportunity for the student to learn and grow about mm-hmm. whatever this t- behavior that they uh, allegedly did. Um, but yeah, so when I think about this, I always ask myself, um, what do we want? What did we want? Mm-hmm. We want the child to be in class. Mm-hmm. We want the child to learn. So now you said that this girl has on a short skirt. Mm-hmm. And she should not be in class because she is going to be a distraction to other boys in the mm-hmm. class. First of all, that's very like cis heteronormative <laughs> kind of thing. Like, okay, if we're going to really indulge that fully, like mm-hmm. it might not just be boys that she's a distraction to, but that's not the point. Sorry, mm-hmm. let me not get totally sidetracked. But <laughs> so I come back to the question, what do we want? We want all the children in class learning. Um. So, but we don't. Well, we don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I know that. Like, that's you mean that's a value, right? That you may hold, right? And, and other folks do, but I think there's massive disconnect. I think when we're talking about um, patriarchal violence, that that is it. Is that we don't really care. Yeah. <laughs> we don't really want um, girls in the classroom. We like are sending a message, like you don't belong here. Yep. And you don't belong here, especially if you are a black girl, but yeah. you don't belong here if you are a girl. Like you, the people we are serving and intend to serve, like in traditional public schools, in private schools, whatever st- like environment that we've built, um, there's a message that we're sending, right? Absolutely. And so that's kind of, it, it would be better if we were more honest about yeah. that. You know? Like if, yeah. I'm so, like, sometimes I read mission statements for schools and I'm like, really? Yeah. yeah it's a, <laughs> Let me hold you to this. (laughs) So just like uh, when we're talking about white supremacy and racism, um, there are white people who feel completely absolved of any complicity in the broader system because they would perceive themselves as this like nice, I'm a nice white person, good white person. I, I don't knowledgefully participate in racism. Now we know that that's not true. Um, but there's like the version of that with patriarchy where there's these like good guys who mm-hmm. are like, you know, I'm I'm not doing any harm. I'm just I'm trying my best. I'm I'm doing good. Um, but would want to absolve themselves of mm. any guilt or any complicity in this broader system. Um, and these are teachers, administrators, mm-hmm. coaches. I think of coaches a lot. Um <laughs> What would you say to those people who, the men specifically, who are like, "I'm a good enough guy. Mm. Um, I'm not. I'm not a part in this thing." Yeah. Ooh. Um. I will say that I personally have had um my most uh 
fruitful um, co-working relationships with other teachers have actually been with men, um, which may be something I actually have to unpack personally. (laughs) Maybe that's my internalized sexism. But I will say like for the men that I have built really um, beautiful teaching relationships with, with it has been because they of their own willingness to interrupt shit in our in our school and in our classrooms that is harmful um and particularly um white men actually in in my life who are willing to sort of put their um like not their well their body on the line or like their own jobs on the line and sort of taking risk in ways that i wouldn't necessarily be able to take or other teachers um, could take. So um, a couple of folks at my previous school who were both white men who did a lot of um, underground dirty work for me when I needed something to get done, um, we would call them unicorns because <laughs> um, the teaching profession is dominated mostly by women and mostly by white women. And so um, when a man is in a teaching space, especially in elementary school, they're sort of seen as these unicorns. Yeah, and so right. they're like magical and everyone loves them. And like all the parents will like vie to be in that in that class that like they'll just fight for their child to be in there. And that's like a whole other thing. And that's a messaging that really hurts sometimes when you're like, there's a reason you're fighting for that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's this very issue we're talking about. But yeah, to answer that question of like, what do you what do you say to these like good enough guys is like put like just just, you know, put your money where your mouth is, I guess. I really don't like that expression, but (laughs) the idea behind it, um, because that's that it wasn't what was needed in order to create like the most um, like fruitful environments for my children and also for me to like do my job well um, and to and to really like serve the needs of my kids in my class. I needed I needed that kind of support. And I was and some for some pretty big things like I've had a lot of issues with like, you know, um, outside um, uh, like outside um oppressive forces or like parents like really rallying for me not to teach in a school or things like that right and these teachers sort of uh, sort of standing up in solidarity oh that's great yeah so i think that's what it is is you have to be willing to like really throw down um and interrupt things that you know are harmful because like i my older brother is a teacher um has mostly worked in middle school and often has to I will tell him like you need to say something like if an issue arises because he'll be like oh this Miss Carrasco told me this and I'm like yeah well Miss Carrasco maybe doesn't have the same agency as you and so like maybe you are the same kind of power that you do at the school because like you're a man and you can navigate it differently so maybe you should say something right yeah yeah okay so (laughs) merely just being willing to yeah to speak up right yeah that's that's good that's good stuff okay so um uh we know that there are self-professed male feminists um who consider themselves to be feminists and even um women who are feminists who can also still perpetuate you know patriarchal attitudes violence things like that um have you seen that in in the school setting this sort of perpetuation even by people who proclaim that they are fighting this thing have you seen Mm. it still i will say i i kind of just want to like maybe self-own that a little bit or just own my own stuff around that is like i'm someone who like works really hard to create inclusive an inclusive classroom one that is like providing children with like freedom and opportunities to like feel free (laughs) um 
But I, yeah, I think I just want to own that, like, when we're talking about systems of oppression, like, it, it is in our, it is in the water, yeah. right? And so I, I obviously am working really hard to disrupt that, but I know that I also participate in it. Um, and so absolutely, I, th- I think about this one student a lot who um, was often <laughs> um, commented on by other teachers um, as, as being very like, uh, quote, promiscuous, uh. right? That was a big word that we use. And we're talking about a, a third grader. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and so I think in my own practice, because I did fall into some of those same um, perceptions around this child and I didn't know how to navigate my own thinking that I never bothered to really interrupt or or sort of defend this child to other teachers, right? Or um, if issues came up with this child, I think it took me longer to sort of um, feel like engage my my compassion or my like my empathy muscle with this huh, child, yeah. right? Because it, there was something telling me like, oh, like this particular child is not worthy of this particular point of empathy, which is false, right? right. But it's my having to constantly uh, like work through that um, sort of that second guessing. So yeah, I think when you're talking about people who are feminists, I mean, I don't. I don't know if I identify as a feminist, but um, I do believe in smashing uh, the patriarchy or whatever, um, dismantling systems of oppression. But yeah, I think I kind of just want to own that. Like that shit was hard. Um, And it it obviously got better. And I worked on this issue in my with my own thinking and um, interrupting it internally. But yeah, like that happens to us, yeah, right? In, that's real. in all I mean, parts of the day. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think a lot of people who are not teachers don't realize just the toll that teaching can take on you. And I, I'm not trying to like be like, oh, it's so hard. But just like <laughs> energy wise, you know, yeah. you you have to be on 100% mm-hmm. all day long. And some days are harder than others and you're tired. Mm-hmm. You come into work tired, you know, by the end of the day, you're going to be feeling pretty exhausted. Mm-hmm. And I think that even makes it easier to play into these things. Um, Because even some of the best teachers who, you know, have this like amazing setup with their (laughs) classrooms and they have couches. Color-coded. Yeah, it's like everything, you know, every student is learning in the exact way they want to and whatever. They walk in the one day and they're not feeling good and like, okay, worksheets, everybody just sit Mm -hmm. down and be quiet, you know. So I- I I, have shown a a Planet Earth video once or twice in my day. Yeah, (laughs) still educational. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I, I really, I respect that. And I think anybody, any of us who are honest, would say the same thing that yeah i mean we try our hardest but absolutely Mm -hmm. we fall into this no matter what it is we fall into this yeah sort of like you said it's in the water it's Mm -hmm. around us the messages are constantly coming through and Mm -hmm. they have been since we were born so yeah yeah and it's like active work right i think i spent a lot of time in in my previous school particularly because i did a lot of um professional development like lateral professional development with my coworkers, but spending so much time trying to convince folks especially seasoned teachers or like veteran teachers that like this is still a very active thing that we still have to learn and oftentimes you're sort of met with this resistance that like nah I figured this out like I've got the teaching game on lock and I'm like no it's it's a very visceral experience every day like if you have it on lock you're probably like maybe not doing what we should be exactly. doing exactly yeah <laughs> and, and I would say that's with teaching as a, a profession but that's also with these things of dismantling systems yeah. of oppression both in yeah. and around us like there's never this i've arrived thing yeah especially someone like myself who 
benefits from intersectional privilege as a straight white man. Mm-hmm. I, there's no, I'm not racist. I'm yeah. not sexist. There's never that. It's mm-hmm. a constant work. It's mm-hmm. a daily, it's a daily work. I don't think we will ever arrive at the destination. It's more of an admittance that I'm working on this. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my best to dismantle this, but mm-hmm. you know, it's a work in progress. Absolutely. Okay. So we've spoken about this next one a little bit sort of indirectly here and there. And I think in the beginning, um, but some people are under the impression that, you know, patriarchal, sexist, misogynistic ideologies can only be perpetuated by men, mm. but we know that they can also be held and perpetuated mm. by women. Um, <laughs> what are ways that you've possibly seen this in the school setting? <laughs> so I did just talk a little bit about my own shit um, and the ways that I participate in that. Um, I th- I think I'm I witness this often in in these younger grade classrooms about when it comes to um our own perceptions about girls' interest and boys' interest. And now this is like such a simplistic example, but it like really does permeate like the way that um <laughs> that children move through our classrooms. Like everything that we do, um, again, because teaching is predominantly done by women, um, uh like reinforces our gender binaries and our expectations for girls are different than boys. And so everything from like our line orders when we're like, line up, girl, boy, girl, boy. Like oh, yeah. there's so many tiny, like again, speaking to this like minute, like things that we do, there's so many tiny things in our classroom practices um, that reinforce um, patriarchal violence. And um, as an extension of patriarchal violence, like the way that we erase the identities of, of children who may not be um, gender, like gender conforming um, or who may be trans or all of those other pieces too. Right. And that's a tiny one, but there's so many things about like about our day um, that reinforce the message that, uh, that, that women teachers reinforce the message that like girls and boys are different and, and like, what you're essentially saying is like girls and boys are different and one of you matters more than the other. Yeah. Uh, like I still remember this. This is such as, again, I feel silly even talking about this because this feels like some second wave feminist nonsense. But um, <laughs> I remember I had a student who uh, in in my table centers, I had staplers that were different colors. Um, and it, I reassigned seats and he ended up sitting at a table that had a pink stapler. Um, and this child had like a meltdown. I'm not talking about like, I don't like, I don't want to use it. Like crying upset because like, I can't use a pink stapler. Wow. That is for girls. And I'm like, what are we doing to babies? What are we doing? If I have a first grader who is so like fearful of using a pink stapler, yeah because it means that's for girls and that means he's a girl and like the messaging behind that he very much knows that it's a bad thing to be a girl um and it i was just like i can't believe that this is happening this feels so silly oh yeah but that's i mean that's a great example and yeah it's as a parent for me it's been so frustrating and kind of I don't know even what the word is. Like I, I don't have control over it. This sort of gendered socialization that happens at school mm-hmm. that I have no control over. Like mm-hmm. sh- my my babies are at school yeah. for eight hours. I <laughs> I don't know what's happening there. Uh, so that in general is a little bit of a yeah. you know overwhelming thing. But you know, 
I know that this socialization for a lot of kids starts before they even enter school because mm-hmm. they grow up in families that sort of reinforce these ideas of men do this, women mm-hmm. do that, men dress like this, women dress like that. This is a man, a man color. This is a woman color. Mm-hmm. Men like this, women like that, you know, this kind of <laughs> stuff. We've tried very hard not to do that um, mm-hmm. here, but uh, you know, as, as I said earlier, Maya is about to be four and she's in a preschool type program, daycare, and Tej is there too. And already it has it started where Maya will come home saying something like, uh, the other day she said, I was uh, picking out her clothes to wear for school that morning. And she said she doesn't want to wear jeans because um, she will look like a boy. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, first of all, is it a bad thing to look like a boy? Like, why, you know, why does that matter? But who told you that? Like, women wear jeans, mm-hmm. boys wear dresses. Like, we have these mm-hmm. conversations all the time. Um, but it's not something she got from home. It's mm-hmm. something she got from school. And mm-hmm. I don't know if she got it from an adult or a child. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. And it's so hard as a parent to know that this is happening at a school where Again, it might not even be like ill intentions that it's happening. Mm-hmm, it might totally. just be one of her little three-year-old friends who's like, boys do this, girls do that. <laughs> yes. um, but it's 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 already becoming apparent how mm-hmm. that happens out of my control in a totally other location mm-hmm. when I'm at work myself that she's getting these messages that she's supposed to be doing something particular in a particular way because she's a girl and boys on the other hand are doing something else in a particular way because they're boys yeah oh all the babies <laughs> like it really it really just overwhelms me sometimes because they're that for me is just so indicative of how not free children are like and and if that's happening in a preschool program like they're they're babies and yeah. they're already being told like these are the rules for existing and you're not allowed to be outside of that um i will just say that something i really try to push for for adults who are working with young people um to just sort of have this con- to sort of commit to um interrupting things like that and also not just doing it for girls but doing it for for like the freedom of young boys absolutely like i think about that all the time like all the things that my my students who are boys or not girls so trans like non-binary students like how much is limited um to their like experience of the world because they're told that's not for them that's for girls so it it hurts everybody right patriarchy hurts everybody the way that white supremacy hurts all of us, the way that these different oppressions like um, takes apart, takes away part of our, our humanity, right? Um, so I think I really like to push that, especially with with teachers. Like it's not just about like like supporting your girls; it's about supporting all your kids. Absolutely. <laughs> and I, and I think about um, what society has told us it means to be a man, to be a boy. And as you said, the little boy was just. M- having a breakdown because Mm -hmm. he couldn't, he cannot use a pink stapler and that's just so limiting and so wild. Um, but we've, we see grown men who, who are doing that and, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, using, um, homophobic language to, Mm -hmm. as a derogatory, Mm -hmm. you know, in a derogatory way to say that something is this or that. And it's just like, it's absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's, it's just as well, maybe not, let me not say just as, but it's potentially as harmful for men. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially men who just 
are it for all men, for all men and yeah. all women, but especially those who don't uh, sort of fall into this, don't want to like sort of identify as this men do this thing, mm-hmm. you know, um, and we're pushing them in that direction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I hate to be so, again, I like get upset with myself when I sound very second wave feminist, but I think um the practice of questioning kids when when they say things that are off, obviously like gender essentialist or um so like for example there, here's my second wave feminist thing i don't shave my legs whatever part of it is because i'm lazy part of it is i'm like fuck the patriarchy fuck the man whatever <laughs> i was i'm gay whatever um but kids often would notice that i didn't shave my legs especially in north carolina when it was hot and i'd be wearing shorts and and usually girls actually not very often it wasn't even boys but usually girls would be like your legs are hairy <laughs> like, yeah. and i'm like and yeah right and they're like well girls don't have hairy legs and i'm like well do you grow hair on your legs and again if it's a third grader they might yeah. <laughs> and i'm like does your mom grow hair on her legs and they'll be like yeah but she takes it off right and sort of uh, talking them through that like well why does she do that or like why do you think that or they're they are trying to make sense of the world that they're they, you know, they're crafting their own like rules and um it's important in this particular moment whether while they're making all these rules and trying to understand and make sense of the world that we're really pushing them to think hard about why we do the things that we do because absolutely yeah i'm like i've had so many good conversations with nine-year-olds about like gender and gender violence as a as an extension because we just ask like well, why? Yeah. <laughs> and they're always excited to be like, well, why? <laughs> um, and are often way more open to holding that why better than we can. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think it's they they have less of these things that have, you know, sort of gone into their heads their entire lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it would be a good thought exercise for us as adults, especially as teachers, when we're confronted with this type of things to say why. Mm-hmm. And back to kind of, codes and discipline Mm -hmm. and stuff in schools i often ask myself that you say don't wear hoodies and i say well why Why? what why (laughs) you say uh bandanas aren't allowed i say why and and there might be an answer like they'll say gangs and things and i'm said well but i i like to ask myself Mm -hmm. why so with this I, i think even with this whether it is with rules and regulations in schools or whether it's just a simple thought like, oh, that girl can't do that because she's a girl. Mm-hmm. And then we stop and say, why? Mm-hmm. Or that boy shouldn't do that because whatever. And we say, why? Mm-hmm. I think if we could sort of act like nine-year-olds and, and do yeah. that, we would probably see a lot more progress. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we've sort of accepted the rules, right? Whether we're actively thinking about them all the time or not. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so we need to be more like nine-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> they are the best. This next question I have for you, we we sort of touched on it a little bit, but maybe not sort of answering it, but you, you <laughs> touched on it in, in saying that schools are constructed for specifically white men, white boys, mm-hmm. um, and cater to white boys. We know much of the public education curriculum is still from the white, cis, hetero, male perspective. And it's not just exclusive to history. Mm -hmm. We see the bias in math and science, Mm. in English, um, the authors that are read in in ELA (laughs) classes. Um, What would your advice to educators who 
don't want these perspectives to be sort of perpetuated, but sort of also have to teach these specific content areas. How, what can they do to sort of disrupt that? Mm. That's such a delicious question. And you could talk about it for literally ever. Um, (laughs) um, In my, like, in my learning to become a teacher. So I originally went to undergrad um, in my hometown of El Paso, Texas. And I was like, I'm going to be a journalist. And then my mom was like, journalists don't make money. And so then um, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a teacher. But like, psych, teachers don't make money either. Exactly. I was going to say, teachers don't make money. <laughs> but it, they make more money than journalists in some cases. So anyway, that's just to say, when I finally decided to go to grad school and and, and study to become a teacher, study education, um, I was in an early childhood development program. Um, and one of the things, things that I really took away from that, which is such a small, silly thing is like my teacher would always say, my professor would always say like, close the door. Um, and so we, we are, if we're going to be working in schools, like we sort of have to have a twofold plan that is one is that we have to like sort of fake it till we make it and, and sort of meet the needs that the school is requiring of us. But at the same time, we need to be teaching this alternative curriculum. And that's in if you're in an environment that is strict and requiring you to, you know, teach yeah. um, from the state standards and things like that. Of course, people who are in more progressive environments might have some more leeway to yeah, do totally. the things that they want. But I'm speaking to that experience. Yeah. And she'd always be like, you have to have both plans. Um, and so when you say like, well, how do we teach the alternative? It's that. And I know that's so much, much more work. Um, and it also just has to be like the commitment that we have to young people. And I know that's not an easy ask of teachers, but I'm saying that as an as a teacher to other teachers, like this world is possible. And it's it's the only like just thing to do for our young people, because I grew up in K through 12 public education school in Texas. And Texas is also the same state that like gives a paragraph to the institution of slavery in their history wow. textbooks. So, yeah. you know, yeah. um, it is unjust, uh, unjust to to not teach teach the alternative right yeah um and so that takes a, a fair amount of risk and a fair amount of bravery to do that but um you're not alone if you're a teacher in trying to do that twofold work of you know closing the door and teaching something else um again that's a metaphor it's not necessarily yeah. <laughs> exactly what you have to do but you're not alone there are resources there are organizations that are providing free resources there are also like communities of educators online like Ryan you're part of them like I'm part of them like Twitter is like a, a haven for Absolutely. teachers who are trying to support each other so it's like we're it's a necessary risk and also like it's one that you won't have to do alone necessarily yeah. So, so a lot of our state tests, our standardized mm-hmm. tests are very specific. It's very specific information, especially in a content area like history mm-hmm. It's very specific information. How can we still sort of get the students to be successful on this, which I wish standardized tests didn't exist at all, but they mm-hmm. do. How can we get them to be successful on that, um, which will allow them to be successful? I'll put that in quotes. Um in their school career, mm. but also, I don't know, uh, come against the ideas mm-hmm. that are also simultaneously being taught with this history that is like almost like probably 90 something percent straight white male. Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. Um, so this, this might be unfair. I might, I might get like be called, I might be called problematic for this. In my own practice, I sort of think it is necessary to, um, 
to not prioritize standardized testing. And I'm saying that from a place of absolute privilege and power. And I know that there are real consequences for not um, sort of teaching to the test or, or pushing students along to meet the standards of a test. But I will say that like, even when you do that, like students still can't necessarily meet the standards of the test because it's an arbitrary test that doesn't actually test necessarily for our um, children's whole like knowledge and expertise and like whole being it is made to exclude on purpose we know why yeah. um and so i'm sort of like why why would i actively participate in that all that being said is that i i do still know that there are real consequences for children when they can't um pass these standardized tests and so for me my starting place um is is having honest conversations with my young people, particularly third graders. That's the first year you test, at least in the state of North Carolina. Um, and so being honest with them about what we're doing here is like, there is something that um, you are going to be required to do. Yeah. This is that thing. Yeah. Um, these are the ways in which I will help you do that thing, but you're also going to be just fine. Um, and we're also going to like, we're going to be able to learn all of the beautiful things that you want to learn about. Um, but also know that this is an expectation and, and being very explicit and honest with young people. And I promise you my nine year olds understand that. I am sure that the older babies can get it too. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I feel like that's, that it's really, really necessary to be honest with kiddos. And I, again, these are all risks you have to take. And depending on your positionality there, there's different um, things you have to consider but i'm saying like it's you you can you can make that decision for yourself right yeah um but it is your responsibility to 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 be honest with young people about what is happening yeah and maybe even just focusing on just merely perspective mm -hmm. and um i know in classes that i've taught before when there is a very specific thing that is supposed to be taught in that i talk about perspective. So who's telling the story? Mm. Why are they telling the story? Why has it been determined that that person should be telling us this information? Mm -hmm. um, so you can say like George Washington did this, that, and the other, <laughs> but okay, um, who's telling us about this? Mm -hmm. Why are we learning about George Washington? Who has determined that that's information that we should be learning? Mm -hmm. And why are, have they determined that? And so you've taught your little piece on George Washington mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but you've also got kids to think critically about why we're even learning what we're learning. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I would literally show like for tech, if I've never taught in Texas schools, I only went to Texas schools, but like looking back at the people who are making our state curriculum in the state of Texas, like if I were teaching there now, I I would be literally showing pictures of these people to my children, right? So that like they'll make those connections. Like there's a reason why we're learning the histories that we that we do. Like I grew up in a predominantly um, Mexican community where like the town is mostly Latinx immigrants, brown people, um, but like everyone in power is white and is making decisions for young uh, people that are like, do you know what I mean? Where yeah. there's a disconnect, and so like ch children need to know that and and be able to see that and like have some context for why their conditions are the way that they are or their curriculum is the way that it is, right? Like, absolutely, that's, a, that's the only fair thing to do. Um, and then seek out those resources for the alternatives, right? That's that fill in all of the gaps or in some cases actually tell the truth because we also have curriculums that are not telling the truth. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think all of this sort of also just 
leads into the idea that we also as teachers could just be teaching critical thinking. Yeah. Um, it's an important, <laughs> you know, it's an important thing to be teaching no matter what subject we're teaching. Mm-hmm. And I I am a firm believer whether it be a standardized test or whatever, if we are teaching our students to be critical thinkers and to think critically about everything, mm-hmm. then they will be set up for they'll be better prepared for a standardized test whether they know the exact content or not they're going to be mm-hmm. in a better position to mm-hmm. do well on that test. Yeah, but that would require that we like trust young people, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's like a whole other conversation, but <laughs> that's what it is when when we're teaching critical thinking where we're saying like you you are trustworthy, you are capable, you are valued, like I respect you as a whole human and I'm not just your like casual classroom dictator. Like right. it requires a relationship. There's so many pieces that go into teaching critical thinking. It's not just about being skeptical. Yep. Or, or reading, what is it called when you read, like when you have to take those kinds of notes and whatever, anyway, those kinds of notes where you have to like annotate and like, that's not critical thinking like that. You're just, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, all the high school teachers are going to come for me, but <laughs> I'm just I saying, share your email. yeah, please don't, please don't do that. Um, but really like it's, it's about that relationship building and that trust piece. And, and that's the ultimate like foundation for critical thinking right and we don't trust young people unfortunately and all too many of us um have entered the teaching profession to basically just be like someone's boss yeah um without really thinking about what we're doing yeah as educators let's just assume that everybody listening now is wanting to just completely smash patriarchy dismantle (laughs) patriarchy uh, eradicate sexism misogyny everything in their classroom um what are some practical ways as educators we can let's let's start with the classroom what are practical ways we can begin to dismantle these things in our classrooms mm, i love that you asked this mostly because i get to talk about carceral feminism <laughs> um <laughs> so for context my my um my political views on on classrooms and teaching is that like we we can have them be sites of liberation where, where children are um, given opportunities to become freer or to become free yeah. uh, or we cannot. Um, so it's sort of like a choice that we have. And there are so many things that impact that decision or that the, to create that environment. But just that's like how I approach teaching. Um, and so when we think about tangible things that we need to do, to dis, uh, to what did you say? Smash patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a funny thing to me. Um, to dismantle this particular system of oppression, it it requires us to think about the through line, um, of of carceral feminism. So my understanding of carceral feminism is that we've created a system in order to use punishment as a tool for gender justice. Does that um, make sense? Yeah. So we're like we're going to use. Uh, a form of punishment and violence in order to sort of say like girls are are powerful too and so i want to sort of reject that i think the the it begins in the in the elementary school classroom it begins in the classroom um so in terms of a tangible it's like being mindful that um we uh, we have sort of like we have so much power in the classroom as teachers um to choose to move differently to not um 
build classrooms that are centered around punishment or centered around exclusion and isolation and choosing who gets to be prioritized over other people like you you have to create pathways for everybody so you have to be thinking about your girls you have to be thinking about your children who are not girls or boys you have to be thinking about um your children who are black girls like you have to think about the identities that are in the room um and and sort of cater to all of them. And we're already asked to do 5,000 things, so I get why you might not want yeah. to, um, but it's possible. So um, if you're th- if you're sort of thinking about it in terms of that framework, um, I think is a first step. So to me, that is a tangible, is like building a framework for understanding. I think the author that you mentioned earlier, the author of Push Out, what's- yeah. Monique Morris. Yeah, I think she talks about classrooms being- I'm, I'm like, hope this is her, but I think she talks about classrooms being um, a site for healing. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I think about that a lot. And so if I'm, when I am planning my my curriculum, I'm planning my day, I'm planning my morning meeting, am I creating a site for healing? Am I um, creating opportunities for, for my girls to feel prioritized, for my black girls to feel included, to be seen? Um so like those things and these are all framework things right like how do you approach teaching um and i think that there has to be like a great deal of work put into that again i liked referenced earlier um the teachers who sort of like i got this teaching thing on lock and there's like right. nothing else for me to do but like we constantly have to be um uh working our empathy muscle and developing like our political analysis to teaching because it's in it's incredibly political right like shout yeah. out bell hooks thank you um <laughs> But it is. So yeah. I think that's a big tangible for me is like constantly working on that on that political analysis um, and thinking about how you are creating a classroom that is a site for healing. Oh, yeah. Like you have to. Um, a little more practical, though, <laughs> um, for dismantling patriarchy is like, can we stop? doing the the gendered lineup thing yes. and girls and boys and like sometimes i do it one time i did it because i did a game of red rover and i was like girls versus boys and <laughs> maybe i shouldn't have done that it was kind of fun but um <laughs> like we in general we sort of have to stop doing that that's like a a big issue um i won't even get to the bathroom thing because i know that is a a whole other issue altogether but it's something that i'm like trying to brainstorm and think about real solutions to um to 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 undoing this practice of like there's a girl's bathroom and a boy's bathroom and like what is the what is the solution so get back to me okay i'll get back to you we'll we'll do a whole episode on bathrooms (laughs) in the schools i did uh teach in a state that had a, a bathroom rule so you know thinking about it um also like uh the other big piece i think aside from like eliminating these like sort of gendered um expectations like lineups and bathrooms and girls do this and boys do that Uh, so the other practical for me is like rethinking um how we how we sort of how we dole out um expectations for kids and um or how we set expectations for kids but then how we dole out punishment or what we you said this thing earlier about like well why like why would i do that for if i want the kid to be in the classroom why would i do x y and z and so for me part of dismantling the patriarchy is rethinking our um our like code of conduct in our classroom. Yeah. So like, for example, there's that system where like you, you move the kids little clip Cards from, from or- red to green to whatever, you know? Yeah. So, think about what that system is doing and what it is saying and what expectations that you are putting up for kids that then 
teach them that it's all about just avoiding punishment or avoiding being bad or um, there's no room for renewal or for repair if we're if we're saying like you can go from green to yellow to red right yeah. and then that's it so that is the type of when when I've when I've explored the idea of carceral feminism, it starts in the classroom. So when they get older, that idea turns into like, well, when you cause me harm, I'm going to involve the state to make sure that you get arrested and then punished right. and then, um, you know, incarcerated. And so like, I know that I'm making quite the jump, but it is connected. It's not though. It's, it's <laughs> actually, unfortunately, it's not that huge of a jump. Yeah. It's really not. And it's, that's where it begins to be learned. And I, as as someone who so I don't do rules in my classroom. Mm-hmm. I have cultural expectations, mm-hmm. and we agree upon them at the beginning mm-hmm. of the year, and we define what certain words mean. So we don't just have like respect each other because what is respect? <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> but we might have respect. It might be one of our cultural expectations that everyone will respect everyone at all mm-hmm. times. That's hard. That's hard to get to. But then we have to define who is everyone, what is respect, all mm-hmm. these things, and you have to break it down and the the it's never a negative consequence if someone breaks that it's a returning to our expectations and Mm -hmm. saying as a group we decided on this Mm -hmm. as expectations that we're going to hold each other to me included and students call me on that um Mm -hmm. you know yes i love when they do that and and it's it's great but i (laughs) I also think and i I mean i'm not like perfect with that obviously but Mm -hmm. I think that's another thing as teachers that we have to be open to student feedback and we have mm-hmm. to create an environment where their feedback is valued, their feedback is important, um, and we really use it and they can see it applied in the lessons. They see it applied in mm-hmm. the way we conduct ourselves. And when they do, I think you sort of, I don't want to say win them over, but like you you earn that respect mm-hmm. and they see it and they're more engaged. And we can start to work towards these yeah. spaces where it is education as a practice of freedom, like what yeah. you were talking about. Absolutely. Miriam Kaba is everyone's favorite abolitionist. Yes. But I th- th- there's this thing that she always says, like, you can't make people accountable. Like, you can only be accountable. Right. And so I think that's when I'm saying, like, th- rethink your code of conduct in your classroom. I th- often hear teachers be like, well, I just want them to be accountable for their actions. It's like, wait, like, we, we can't force people children or people or anyone to to do x y and z but we can create a culture where we feel accountable to each other and we feel a sense of responsibility and um sort of like and that all happens in the relationship building right so if you know Susie does x y and z it like like what is the relationship that has been um you know, disconnected or what is the harm that was caused that needs repair or all of those things that we should be thinking about other than like Susie needs to be accountable to who, to what, like, um, and only Susie can sort of do that, but you can create the environment, the conditions, right? The, the process, the systems, whatever you're going to use, um, to sort of make that happen. Like you said, you have a community agreement or is that what you called it? Yeah. Community, community expectations. Community expectations. Um, I would use like, uh, I would use community agreement. I think that was the language that I used. Um, I also like would pull from, um, this, there's this like, uh, older like Chicano Aslan it's maybe a little messy and complicated but in Lakesh <laughs> is like that whole concept that like tu eres mi otro yo uh, and the idea that like you are my other me like when I do harm to you I'm doing harm to myself yeah. because we are in relationship to each other this is a classroom this is a community like 
and in sort of building up those values when, yeah. when I'm thinking about community agreements or being in relationship with each other, because it's not really going to do anyone any good, myself or other students, if I'm just like, you need to be accountable. And it's like, for what? Yeah. <laughs> um, but if we are in right relationship, like our goal is to like be in community with each other, right? Absolutely. And it, that that just kind of reminds me of that inescapable network of mutuality like mm-hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about. And if we could create that idea in the classroom that I'm affecting you, you're affecting mm-hmm. me, we're also like co-creators. We're mm-hmm. building each other up, whether we're trying to or not, mm-hmm. and we're breaking each other down, whether we're mm-hmm. trying to or not. And so if we all, so one of my, cultural classroom cultural expectations that I add. So I have a couple that I suggest mm-hmm. and then we build off of there. But one that I always add that in the beginning of the year, and see, I teach high school, so it's mm-hmm. not nine, nine year olds, but um, <laughs> they're still babies though. Um, they are. That's, you I mean, that's a whole other, can you have a podcast episode about that? Yeah. Like high schoolers are children. Yeah, they are children <laughs> and still babies. Um, but one of my cultural expectations for the classroom is that we will all, positively motivate each other to be better Mm. and in the first time i say that and i even now i preface it with i know you're gonna roll your eyes i know this (laughs) might sound corny um but when you build that culture where that is something we're actively trying to do every time we come together this is what we're trying Mm -hmm. to do it doesn't matter what the curriculum what the content area is um that when we come together we want to build each other up Mm -hmm. rather than break each other down and as a teacher you can Establish that in your classroom. Mm-hmm. It's not some far off thing, mm-hmm. um, but often it's us, ourselves, the teachers who are the first to not act in that way mm-hmm. and use this derogatory language and this like shame and guilt and, mm-hmm. oh, well, okay, so nobody's paying attention. So everybody has a quiz. <laughs> Open, put your books away, clear your desk, take out a sheet of paper, quiz time. And we're literally using our content to punish the students. Yeah. Anyways, I think I'm getting way off, but um, it's okay. I think that's even. I think this is all connected. It is all. Connected. I would like to um actually just teach a course about the way that punishment rules every aspect of our lives in schools. It's just it it does permeate every aspect of my teaching practice, like from why kids do or don't do things. Like I won't do that because it, I could get in trouble, and right. it's like what? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's a whole other issue, but it's related. Well, it's related, and especially with this topic. There are specific people and groups of people who are targeted by these mm-hmm. practices um, unfairly and disproportionately. And as you've mentioned multiple times, black girls are some of those people who are targeted in schools mm-hmm. by this um, oppressive stuff. So, yeah. so yeah. Well, we've covered a lot. I know. A lot. And I'm like, patriarchy is no tiny subject. Yeah. So. It's, I've asked a lot of you and I'm, I'm asking you to <laughs> come up with answers to questions that obviously the world has not even come up with yet in some <laughs> ways. So thank you so much. But is there anything else that you, you know, that maybe didn't come up or that you feel, mm. uh, you want to, or final last words or anything like that? My final last words? That sounds really ominous. I know. Um, <laughs> Not like that kind of final, but. Uh, well, maybe this isn't um, entirely related to schools, but I think it's, I think it's been on the top of my brain, mostly because of um, some of the conversations around um young people's hymens. Oh, right. Thank you, <laughs> <And>, T.I. <laughs> thanks for that. Um I will just say, like, to me, 
like I I really just want to like push people to like protect children, to protect young girls, to protect young black girls, to be thinking about like the power that we have and the vulnerability of um of this unprotected class of people, which is which is children, right? Um I I not being hyperbolic when I said the story, when I say the story around um, T.I. and checking his daughter's hymen was incredibly triggering for me because I'm just thinking about my own experiences as someone who didn't have bodily autonomy because everyone, ever, all my relationship to masculinity and to patriarchy was like to be controlled by the men in my life. And so it was really hard to listen to that story. And it, it just reminds me that like, in every aspect of our lives, like we are, like girls are so incredibly vulnerable and not safe. Um, and schools is just another piece of that. So my final last words is like fucking protect children at all costs, protect girls, protect trans girls, protect black girls, like start thinking about those things. If you're not already thinking about them, think about the ways that you are showing up for this unprotected class. Um, and, yeah, I, like children are not just uh, like not human until they're adults. Like they right. are, they are full people, and they have feelings and experiences. And um, I've, I mean, just because you turned out fine doesn't mean that it won't impact a child differently. And the likelihood is you probably didn't turn out fine. Yeah, either. fine is relative. <laughs> like everyone is like, it happened to me, and I turned out fine. It's like you probably didn't. <laughs> right. Um, but th- I think that's what I'm feeling right now in my heart is like. God, like, like we have to protect children. Yes. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's a quote. I'm going to put it on a shirt. <laughs> Fucking protect. <laughs> all the- <laughs> Just like a list. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Uh. Um, okay. So one thing that we didn't speak about is that you are a co-owner of an amazing bookstore yes. that I love. Our family. It's a family favorite. Um, and you have other things, other ways, other projects maybe that people could get involved with or other aspects of your life. Um, so would you like to share some of those things? Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? What um, can they do? Well, they can find me on Twitter. Okay. Um, I'm Steph with an F, an E. Is that cute? Yeah. Yeah. I love okay, it. great. Well, they can find me on Twitter. Um, can I make a shout out for like teaching work? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I would love okay. That. I want to make a shout out for um an organization that I've been working with for about five-ish years, run by Rhonda Taylor Bullock. I'm sorry, Dr. Rhonda Taylor oh, Bullock. Yes. Um in Durham, North Carolina. So she had this vision um to create programming for children and their families to talk about race um and so she exclusively works for with kindergarten through fifth graders um and having explicit conversations about race and racial equity and like she runs a summer program oh wow um so it's basically a summer camp where your kid goes and gets to um get militant i love that um but i started off as one of her camp counselors and have been involved with the organization ever since in building curriculum to have really good conversations with young people about race and other systems of oppression. Um, the organization is called We Are, so working um, to extend anti-racist education. Um, but I really want to shout her out to support her and just to manifest all her dreams because she had this vision to like have these beautiful and important and necessary conversations with kids. And um, she's changed my life because of it. I've become wow. a better teacher because of her and her work. And, and she's she's changing the game in North Carolina. That's awesome. Yeah. I'll definitely put all the links up 
on the extended learning page and people can access that there. I think folks can find um, the bookstore information, 1977books.com. We have a website and we also have all of the social media handles. You can find us at 1977books um, at all of those places. I will just say like um, our work is based on the foundation of black feminists who have given us a pathway forward. So 1977 comes from um, the Kambahi River Collective Statement, which was published in 1977, which was a group of black feminists who were like, y'all, this is what you should do. um, And this is what we are going to do. And we're still obviously working on that, working from that framework um, and that blueprint for how we're all going to get free. But that yeah, I just wanted to make sure I honor the fact that that we named the bookstore after that. That's awesome, and I'll put that up on the extended learning page too, so okay. people can see and read. Yeah, and that's learn. beautiful. Um, yeah, but that that's all I have to shout out. I really do just want to honor, like, in this conversation I had had with you, like, so much of my learning has come from Rhonda and her organization and the ways that we are thinking about race and also uh, gender and how those two things come together and and. She yeah, she's changed my my life and my thinking and I, I yeah, I just wanna uplift her as a, a black feminist thinker. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Maybe I can get her on an episode if yeah, she's you willing. Defi- you definitely can should. I get her <laughs> <laughs> You definitely should. We'll I'll, get her here. Okay, good. <laughs> um yeah, so I just I mean, I just wanna say I appreciate you as a person. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you. You're a big uh <laughs> you're loved by our family, whole family. <laughs> um, but yeah, I appreciate your work, your hard worker, um when it comes to this these issues and um it's not a easy fight always and it can feel tiring and all the various things that it can feel um but you you know you've committed to it and now on top of the work that you already do which is not just a bookstore you've opened a bookstore (laughs) up on top of that and um that's amazing and i really i respect that and yeah appreciate you we're all working in our own way right we find our our thing yeah we, you are. Yeah. Um, not everybody, but you're doing good. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. But thank you so much for joining me. And it's been a great tom- uh, conversation. Thank you for having me. All right. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to ask you a few questions, okay? Mm-hmm. What's your name? Maya Kalea Dalton. How old are you? Uh, still three. Still three? When do you turn four? Uh, in February 28th. That's right. What kind of birthday party are you going to have? Um, a jewelry party. Jewelry party. Okay, that sounds great. What is your favorite thing to wear? Um, dresses. Dresses? Yeah. Okay. Are there certain things that boys can do and girls can't do? Um, not what? Are there certain things that boys can do that girls and boys and girls can't do that boys can do? Um, what do, what what can boys not do? I don't know. Is there something that they can't do? them can do um let's say you know sometimes we talk about 
things that we wear or things that we do? Is there something that girls can't wear that boys can? Or what is it? What's... I don't know. I only know something that boys can wear and girls can wear. What is it? Boys can wear dresses and earrings and rings and necklaces and ballet shoes. And girls can wear jeans and a t-shirt and coats. That's right. Can Is there anything that boys can't wear or girls can't wear? Um, no. No? No. Can everybody... Just wear anything? Boys can wear everything. Boys can wear everything? Yeah. What about girls? Them can wear dresses and pants. They can wear everything too. Yeah. Alright. Thank you for inter- for interviewing with me. You're welcome. Alright. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Is it your homework? To learn more about Steph and her work, follow her on Twitter at Steph with an F and E and visit the website to 1977 books at 1977books.com. You'll find the links to other resources she mentioned on the extended learning page. A book that was referenced a lot in this episode and a great starting point for anyone trying to get a better understanding of feminism and fighting sexism is Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. And of course, I also highly recommend any and every other book by Bell Hooks. For the links to previously mentioned resources, links to the articles mentioned in This Week in the News segment, and more information and resources about this episode's topic, visit the extended learning page on weteachuspodcast.com. Exit ticket. Patriarchy as an ideology and an institutionalized system of domination engenders violence on both women and men, girls and boys, in our classrooms, schools, school system, and broader community. We know that girls, and specifically young black girls, are especially and specifically vulnerable to the targeted discrimination and violence brought forth by this oppressive system. Fighting sexism in our school communities and societies starts with us. We have to be willing to question things that have been established as the quote norm, discontinuing any thoughts, speech, and actions that perpetuate harmful ways that patriarchal ideas and violence impact us and our students. We have to do better by our kids. As educators, we have to work to dismantle patriarchy in our classrooms, school communities, and broader system. We have to start where we are and do what we can. Change begins with us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of We Teach Us. Visit our website on weteachuspodcast.com. Follow and interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at We Teach Us. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash We Teach Us Podcast. And call in and leave a voicemail to give your input for the You Do segment at 615-348-7303. Lastly, subscribe to, rate, and review We Teach Us on whatever streaming platform you're listening on and spread the word. We We Teach teach us. Us.